Welcome to the Frontline Gastroenterology podcast, based on a paper entitled British Society of Gastroenterology Best Practice Guidance Outpatient Management of Cirrhosis Part 3 Special Circumstances Published online in Frontline Gastroenterology in July 2023 My name is Dr Philip Smith, Deputy Editor and Social Media Associate Editor of Frontline Gastroenterology an honorary consultant gastroenterologist at the Royal Liverpool Hospital, Liverpool, United Kingdom. My co-interviewer is Dr. Mursan Subani. Thank you. It is a pleasure to join you for the third part of this exciting podcast series on the outpatient management of cirrhosis. My name is Dr. Mursan Subani, trainee associate editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and gastroenterology registrar in the East Midland Deanery. Nottingham, UK. Together, we'd like to extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Dina Mansour, consultant gastroenterologist and hepatologist, Gateshead Health NHS Foundation Trust, Newcastle, United Kingdom. Dr. Mansour is the lead author on this paper, as well as the other two papers in this in this series. We'd also like to welcome Dr. Coral Hollywood, consultant hepatologist at Gloucestershire. Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust in the United Kingdom, who is co-author of this paper too. Dr. Mansour, Dr. Hollywood, thanks so much for joining us today to do this podcast to discuss this very important guideline relating to dealing with special circumstances in cirrhosis. Thank you very much for having us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Which really leads me now into my first question. We understand that this guideline was commissioned by the British Society of Gastroenterology and was endorsed by the British Association for the Study of Liver and the British Liver Nursing Association. Can you please explain the background to why these guidelines are important and what are the target audience for these guidelines? So um, we came up with these guidelines to try and first of all, address variations in care for patients with cirrhosis across the UK. And wherever you look, there's evidence of um, significant variation in care. And through that, we wanted to improve standards of care and outcomes for patients with cirrhosis. So that's our primary aim with these guidelines. We also felt it was really important to get all the information into one place. There are lots of different guidelines, but there's a lack of overarching guidelines for um, outpatient management of patients with cirrhosis. We wanted to fill in some gaps where there was areas where there weren't specific guidelines and not much of a known consensus, and also update some of the more um, out-of-date guidelines um, that we had in the UK. Um, So that was our overall aim with the guidelines in general. And it's really meant to be as inclusive as possible and um, is relevant to anyone looking after patients with cirrhosis from specialist nurses and AHPs in district general hospitals to tertiary centres. Thank you. What are the specific special circumstances addressed in the paper? And why is it important to have separate guidelines for these situations? We address various separate situations in these guidelines, um, including surgery in patients with cirrhosis, management of pregnancy in cirrhosis. We address portal vein thrombosis management in patients with cirrhosis, travel, as well as 
managing um, bleeding risk for patients undergoing invasive procedures. And we thought it was important to consider these separate guidelines because um, now that we have earlier diagnosis for um, cirrhosis, we're encountering these situations more and more frequently, but because they're still uncommon. Um, people are generally very much less comfortable with dealing with patients in these specific scenarios than they are with dealing with patients, the routine patients that we see with either compensated or decompensated cirrhosis in clinic. How does the outpatient management of cirrhosis differ in special circumstances compared to the standard cases? So underlying liver disease may be a risk factor for surgical conditions. Patients with cirrhosis who require surgery, including C-section, are at greater risk of complications and death compared with patients with healthy livers. Particularly from hepatic decompensation, worsening liver synthetic function and sepsis following surgeries. The degree of risk is dependent upon the severity of their liver disease. Risk stratification is therefore essential for the effective counselling and sharing decision making. And this paper hopes to address some of those questions posed not just by professionals, but also by patients themselves. Thank you. The guidance covers the management of cirrhosis in patients undergoing an elective or emergency surgery. Could you discuss some of the key considerations and challenges specific to this? There's no single validated test to stratify risk of surgery in patients with cirrhosis and therefore referral to a multidisciplinary team, including surgeons, anaesthetists and hepatologists with experience in managing this patient group is recommended prior to surgery. In patients with cirrhosis, non-urgent surgery should be deferred until adequate assessment has been undertaken and their liver disease is optimised. A special care should be taken to optimise nutrition which is always a concern with patients with cirrhosis. Emergency surgery patients with cirrhosis carries an increased mortality risk and cirrhosis is an independent predictor of death. We have some specialist considerations for anaesthetists in particular. So preoperative considerations include regional techniques which convey less of a morbidity and mortality risk than general anaesthesia. Optimization of ascites with medication and drainage in reduction also reduces the risk of respiratory morbidity and post-operative complications. In the post-operative period, decompensation occurs. Please seek early hepatology and gastroenterological review. Patients in having surgery with decompensated cirrhosis carries a significantly higher risk of mortality. Surgery should be avoided if possible or delayed until after, after liver has recompensated. If possible, for all the most urgent and life-saving procedures should only be considered at this time. Thank you. What are the recommended strategies for managing cirrhosis in pregnancy as outlined in this paper? Are there any unique challenges in this scenario? All women of childbearing age with cirrhosis should be made aware of pre-pregnancy counselling. And so complex cases should be referred to specialist centres. PPC, or pre-pregnancy counselling, allows risk stratification of women with cirrhosis and individualised care, again, to allow onward referral if necessary. Pregnancies in cirrhosis are associated with increased risk of maternal complications, including mortality and decompensation, intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy and pregnancy-induced liver disease, preeclampsia 
and postpartum hemorrhage. Preconception MELD scores of less than 6 predict positive pregnancy outcomes, whilst MELD scores of greater than 10 predict hepatic decompensation during their pregnancy. Portal hypertension increases during pregnancy, peaking in the second trimester. Varices can therefore present or enlarge during pregnancy. Endoscopy is considered safe provided pregnant women are not over-sedated and guidelines recommend variceal screening during the second trimester in women with suspected portal hypertension. The American guidelines recommend screening endoscopy in the first year to preconception, and if there are no varices at this time, it doesn't need to be repeated during the pregnancy. However, if endoscopy did not occur during the preconception phase, it is recommended. We recommend timing this at 21 to 24 weeks gestation, and non-selected beta blockers can be started or even continued in patients with grade one esophageal varices. Risks do include fetal hyperglycemia, bradycardia and intrauterine growth restriction. Endoscopic band ligation can be considered for the larger esophageal varices. Pregnancy in decompensated liver disease is more challenging, however. Pregnancies in women with decompensated liver diseases are rare due to the hormonal imbalances caused by end-stage liver disease. The pre-pregnancy MELD scores of greater than 10 predict the risk of hepatic decompensation during the pregnancy. Varicel hemorrhage is the most common manifestation of decompensation and this should be addressed with preconception or during the pregnancy endoscopy. Diuretics, rifaximin and most prophylactic antibiotics should be discontinued due to the fetal risks, though beta blockers and lactulose can be continued. In acute varicel hemorrhage, refractory to endoscopic therapy, TIPS insertion can be considered and in the context of liver failure, transplantation can be performed successfully even in pregnant women. What are some common considerations and recommendations for the patients with cirrhosis who wish to travel? So this is something that uh, frequently comes up in um, outpatient consultations and patients often ask if they are safe to travel, which can be a very difficult question, in particularly in patients with decompensated disease. But you've got to bear in mind that travel can be a very important part of a patient's quality of life. And so the risks have to be balanced um, against the potential benefits of travel. The main thing is preparation. Um, so from the patient's point of view, they should have some documentation about their condition um, the potential risks um, and potential treatments, what medications they're on. They should carry their medication with them or have some means of getting their medication. If they're traveling within the UK, they can pick their medication up um, from any pharmacist, for example. They should get their vaccinations done, and this may include um, vaccination against hepatitis A or hepatitis B if ha this hasn't already been done. And also getting travel insurance, which can be very difficult or very expensive for patients with cirrhosis. And some of the liver charities are a really good place to signpost the patients to, to find out more information about which travel um, insurance companies might give them the best deal. From our point of view, it's really important to try and optimise um, the liver disease as much as possible. If they've had a recent decompensation, for example, it might be worth waiting until they've recovered from that. Um, need to make sure that they're up to date with all their surveillance, particularly variceal surveillance, although there's no case reports or any data suggesting 
there's increased risk of variceal bleeding with flying or at altitude. Anecdotally, it can happen. Um, and so it's definitely worth making sure patients are on primary or secondary prophylaxis prior to travel. And with all, with all things, the most important thing is making sure the patient has all the available information to make the best informed decision and to be as prepared as possible. Thank you. What are the basic principles of managing bleeding risk in patients with cirrhosis undergoing common low-risk procedures? And when is it necessary to check or correct clotting or platelet count prior to the procedure? This is another common scenario, particularly um, with regards to paracentesis, which is a low um, bleeding risk procedure. The changes to the hemostatic systems um, during cirrhosis are really complex. It affects both the prothrombotic and anticoagulant pathways. And it's really important to remember and remind colleagues in other specialties like radiology, for example, that the PT, APPT and platelet count in patients with cirrhosis does not at all reflect their bleeding risk. They're actually at increased risk of thrombosis and the bleeding risk is primarily related to portal hypertension and vessel injury. For low risk procedures, which we would deem anything with a bleeding risk of less than 1.5%, there's no indication for checking clotting or um, platelet count prior to the procedure. So we've got a table included in the guidelines of low risk and high risk um, procedures, but low risk are things like diagnostic endoscopy, um, paracentesis, thoracocentesis, TOE, um, and even percutaneous or transjugular liver biopsy. For higher risk procedures, then you can do the um, clotting prior to the procedure in case there is bleeding and you then need to correct the clotting. But uh, there's still no indication for um, prophylactic blood products such as FFP or platelets. And in fact, what evidence there is suggests that potentially giving these blood products prior to procedure can increase their portal hypertension and therefore actually increase the risk of bleeding when they have these procedures. So generally speaking, the general rule is that you don't need to check as in, in stable patients who have, um, even if they're chronically raised PT and low platelet counts, there's no need to check. If, if they do come in with acute on chronic liver failure, for example, then there may be other things going on, such as DIC, or they have severe malnutrition and have vitamin K deficiency, then it's a different story. Um, but for the stable cirrhotics, there's no, no reason to check clotting before low-risk procedures such as paracentesis. Thank you, Dr. Mansour. Um, can you please summarise the salient points in the management of portal vein thrombosis and cirrhosis? And what are the key considerations? So as I've alluded to, patients with cirrhosis are at increased risk of thrombosis in general. Um, there's an increase in factor VIII, which is a procoagulant, and a decrease in protein C, which is an anticoagulant. And also there's reduced flow in the portal vein. The velocity of flow is reduced and a degree of endothelial injury, which all means that they're at increased risk of portal vein thrombosis. A lot of patients will be asymptomatic and will find the clotting the clot on um, routine surveillance imaging, but there is evidence that portal vein thrombosis can be associated with decompensation, including variceal bleeding and also increased mortality for patients on the transplant wait list. Initial diagnosis is usually made either on CT or Doppler ultrasound scan. 
you should do an MRI or CT scan to look at the extent of the clot and to rule out um, hepatocellular carcinoma. And the most recent easel guidelines suggest that if patients have a clot of more than 50% of their portal vein that has occurred within the last six months, so a recent clot, or if they're symptomatic from the portal vein thrombosis, or there is SMV involvement, or in any patient who is a liver transplant candidate with any degree of clot, they should be started on anticoagulants. There it's, it should be considered on a case-by-case basis um, if patients have very, very low platelet counts, for example, of less than 50. But generally speaking, anticoagulation is safe in these patients. It's important to check that they don't have varices and to start primary prophylaxis if they do have varices prior to starting treatment with anticoagulation. Generally speaking, patients will be started on low molecular weight heparin initially and then converted either to warfarin with an INR range of two to three, or um, it's thought that um, directly oral acting um, anticoagulants are also safe, particularly in patients with child's A cirrhosis. They can be used in um, child's B cirrhosis with caution. Um, At the moment, they should be avoided in patients with child C cirrhosis but can be used in the context of clinical trials. Once they're started on anticoagulation, the anticoagulation should be continued for at least six months and until the clot is resolved. If they're a transplant candidate, it should be continued until transplantation. And some patients who are high risk, for example, they have involvement of the superior mesenteric vein or were very symptomatic or have had multiple clots, then it may be needed to be continued long term. If patients have progressive portal vein thrombosis despite anticoagulation, then you can switch anticoagulation. So if they're on a DOAC, for example, you can put them on warfarin or increase the INR range and discuss with hematology. Um, Interventional radiology tips and surgery are reserved for um, the kind of acute symptomatic um, patients with ischemia uh, and some transplant candidates. But um, as with all these things, if there are, if you do have a patient who's really unwell, um, who has cirrhosis and has an acute portal vein thrombosis, then it's always worth discussing with your tertiary centre. Thank you, uh, Dr. Mansell. That's really, really clear. Lastly, are there any special circumstances not covered in this guideline paper that you believe should be addressed in future research or guidelines? Well, I think Dr. Dina Mansour has done an excellent job at pulling all the specialists together to discuss things that are relevant to not only the people who look after patients with liver disease, but also the patients themselves. There is very little left that she hasn't already covered in these three excellent papers. I think one thing that's come up most recently is um, the effects of heat on medication and perhaps with the climate change agenda, this might be something that we look at in the future, including how our medication should be stored. And of course, people are always asking about other medications while they have liver disease, such as HRT, or even taking anti-malarials when they go abroad. I'm sure Dina has some ideas of her own also. Thank you, Dr. Hollywood. I, I completely agree. I think these are very, very thorough and excellent documents. So I'd like to finish there and thank uh, Dr. Mansell, Dr. Hollywood, for your excellent overviews of this guideline taking the time to join us to do this frontline gastroenterology podcast today 
Again, many congratulations on having your extended guidance on the outpatient management of cirrhosis published in Frontline Gastroenterology. Well done, especially to Dr. Mansour, um, the first author in all three uh, parts of, of this guideline. Excellent work, and you've obviously had some excellent co-authors as well. I'd like to say particular thanks also to uh, Musan Subhani, um, our trainee editor, who's doing his first podcast today. So well done, Musan. You've done really, really well. So thank you very much for joining me today. To our listeners, if you'd like to read part three of this liver series, then um, click on the link underneath. You can also click on other links to, to read the other two parts as well. They're an excellent series. And of course, to all of our listeners, please join us again in the future for further episodes of the Frontline Gastroenterology podcast. Thanks very much for listening. Mm-hmm.